Hi, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I'm your host. Uh, continuing to talk about Hesed, just a quick, uh, maybe not a full-length podcast today, uh, probably a little shorter than that. I uh, preached today in church on um, the story of Zacchaeus, and in the in that, there's some important aspects of Hesed that come out there, and I'd like to just kind of run through that story quickly, and maybe what you'll find is there's more to that story than you ever really considered there was in that story, because mostly what you probably do if you grew up in church, especially if you're a kid, and I don't know if this is a universal thing, but it was certainly in the churches that I went to, and I went to uh, a Methodist church. I grew up in a Methodist church, and we sang the song there, and then I would go to Bible school with my buddies, and we go to Baptist churches, and they knew the song there, and my kids grew up knowing the song, and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, everybody seems to know it. And it's, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, climbed way up in a sycamore tree, um, you know, that whole thing. And so we've we've reduced that story down to that. But I think there's a lot more to that story. It's a lot more important. It's important uh, in that first that Luke felt that it was really significant and ought to be included in the gospel account of Jesus's life and particularly remember where this occurs in Jesus's life he is going to Jerusalem he has set his face to Jerusalem and he's going there to be crucified and so this is this is a, a an episode that happens on the way so it, it seems like Luke's trying to tell us this is really important I'm not giving you a cute little story and a digression from this very serious movement of Jesus going to Jerusalem, crowds coming with him, and he does a lot of significant things in the Gospels on that journey. And so I want to look at that and, and, and give you some thoughts on, on Hesed that, that, that maybe I haven't played out very well yet, and it's maybe because it's not really you know, kind of time within this continuum of teachings to do that. But I want to share with you about the story of Zacchaeus. I want to talk about that and how it connects with the, the idea of Hesed. So I want to read that story for you to begin with. So it's found in Luke 19. It's the first 10 verses of Luke 19. So he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost." So that's the story, and everybody's probably familiar with that. Everybody probably knows the details of it, and you can picture it in your mind if you grew up singing that song. So it's not really, you know, anything that you're not familiar with. But what I want to do is sort of enhance your familiarity with it by contextualizing it. I want to tell you something about Zacchaeus, tell you what it meant to be a chief tax collector, 
situate him in place and time, and then talk about how this concept of Hesed plays out. So the first thing to know is, is that the chief tax collector meant that, that Zacchaeus was responsible for a region. And the region that he would have been in is Jericho. And he's a chief tax collector for the Roman Empire in Jericho. So essentially, he is uh, a guy who has, who, who has already had some money and some success. And so the way the Romans did this was they would then farm out the tax collection work so people could make money. It became a job. So it would be like we don't have an IRS. It would be like we had somebody over my you know, my, uh, standard metropolitan uh, area. So, so it would be somebody who, who buys that franchise from the government to collect taxes. And the way that they bought it was that the, they would take bids. The empire would take bids and they would say, okay, how much do you think this area is worth? <clears throat> and so the person, prospective tax collector would go to Rome and they would say, we think it's worth this. And so Rome would let it out to the highest bidder because whatever that number was, was the number that Rome was going to get. And that's a period end of sentence. They were going to get that money. And the way that they got it first was the tax collector gave them that money on the front end. So they, they were out of pocket right on the front end for all that money. And the deal was that, okay, so the, the Roman uh, Empire was, was magnanimous, at least a little bit. And they would say, okay, so we've got your money for this period of time. And so at the end of that period of time, if indeed you give us that amount of money back after you've collected it, then what we'll do is we'll give you the interest on it for us having had that your money for all that period of time. So they would make an income off of that. But then they would also then were greatly encouraged to make an extra buck and, and then, you know, another extra buck and, and then another extra buck. And so they were particularly hated within Judaism because they were seen as sort of collaborating with the enemy. You could, you, you could kind of look at it. I mean, and I'm, trying, and I'm not trying to say this is a one-for-one -one correspondence. I'm trying to say that, that if you want to know how hated they were, this is a way of, of thinking about that. So... Uh, in the Nazi concentration camps, the most hated people there were actually not the Nazis. The most hated people there were Jewish prisoners who were collaborating with the Nazis for favors and, and special treatment by them. So, so they were seen as, the, as worse than the Nazis themselves because they knew this was evil and they were cooperating only for themselves. And so they had turned their backs on their fellows. And that's the way that essentially that, that they would have thought about Zacchaeus in his time. And so what Zacchaeus had is a very wealthy, comparatively, a wealthy little area where he's collecting money. It was a huge trade area. There was a lot of balsam in that area, which is a valuable wood for construction. And so there were there was large receipts probably that he got. And, and we know that it was a prosperous area for multiple reasons. One is Luke tells us he was a rich man. But also we know from records and from, from excavations in Jericho, and this is not, um, by the way, Old Testament Jericho. This is near there, but it's not that same town. So anyway, we know excavations of that at that time in Jericho show us from, from like places where people were buried. In surrounding areas, there would be a very high percentage of young people under 19 years old buried in, in those places. But a much smaller, like a third smaller percentage 
of the, the, those in Jericho were that age, which would tend to indicate that it was a prosperous place and so that there was better health, there was better everything. And so if, if children weren't dying, there was a reason for that. And it wasn't the hot springs or the climate or the whatever, because you're not talking about a very large area that, where they're comparing that. So we know that it was a prosperous area. But here's the other thing. The way that tax collectors would work in that part of the Roman Empire was they collected taxes in multiple ways. But they also had multiple public responsibilities. They were publicans is the way to say it. Not Republicans, but they were publicans. They were men of note in the city. They were the people the Roman Empire looked to to do civic works projects, roads, all those kinds of things, public buildings. Um, and and the, so they would lobby the government for that. And, and they were respected men in the Roman Empire, even though they were hated at the local level by the Jews particularly. So what they did was they would basically, they would come to your house and they would look at your house and look at your stuff. And then they would say, okay, I think this property is worth this amount. So here's the rate on that. So you got to pay me. So you can imagine what this looks like, right? So they come out, they're looking at your stuff and they're saying, well, that's a nice rug. I think that rug's probably worth $200. You can no, no, that, that whole thing. No, come on. We've had that a long time. And so there's going to be a bargaining that goes on back and forth over the value of the stuff. But the tax collector had a great incentive to make that number larger. So one of the things that they were criticized for was exactly that, that they overestimated the value of your stuff so that they could get a bigger collection on the back end of that. But the other thing they had was any trade that came through their area, there were excise taxes on it. So you're going to pass through here. Well, what's the value of the stuff that you've got? All right, it's this. All right, here's the tax on that. So they didn't just tax the residents. They also taxed the people that that came through there to conduct any sort of trade. And remember that, that where we're talking about is sort of between Galilee and Jerusalem. And so Jewish pilgrims who are going to the festivals like Passover and all that are passing through there and they're passing through there with stuff because they've got to take um, sacrifices. And so they could potentially be taxed when they come through there. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means probably he sat in an office somewhere and he had people that he employed going out there and actually collecting those taxes and enforcing that for him. And, and they probably had an incentive to jack it up even higher. But so Zacchaeus can be sort of one level beyond that, right? So he's not the guy who is in your face doing all this stuff, but they, everybody knows how this system works and that ultimately he's the guy making all the money. And it says he's a rich man. So everybody would have known that he was a rich man. The other thing to know is that the, in, the real enforcement, the ones who collected the taxes, were actually the Roman soldiers. So they were at his disposal too for that purpose. And so you can see the potential here for abuse in the system because if I'm, it's, it's sort of a mafia boss and it's all trickles down. And so you've got these guys who are now the enforcers. They're going to go out and collect. Well, they've got an incentive to make an extra buck off this too. They're going to have to give him a certain amount of money. So they've got reason to do that. And that's the reason when John is baptizing, there's two groups of people in particular that come out and say, now that we've been baptized, what do we do? And one of them is the tax collectors. And John sa says, don't collect any more than you're due. And then the, um, 
soldiers come out and they ask, what do we do? And, and he says, don't, don't harass people and don't, don't get more from them than you're supposed to. And so the, it's not that tax collection is a bad thing. Taxes make the world go round on a public basis like that, right? So, but the problem is, is these guys were profiteering off of it and, and they were, they were uh, predatory, I guess is a better way to say it. They were predatory and so they were collecting more than they had actually bid on and they were becoming quite wealthy from it. And so you can imagine how much you would resent that if the IRS said, all right, you owe $5,000, but then they sent somebody to you and said, all right, hey, that letter says $5,000, but I need $5,500. And then, you know, if you didn't pay that, then they sent a collector out and that person was a soldier. And so another agent of the state comes and says, yep, well, now it's going to be $5,750 because you didn't take care of it. So anyway, there's this, that, that's the whole idea of, of who Nicodemus is and why everybody hated him. He was Zacchaeus, not Nicodemus, sorry. So that was part of that issue was how much they hated him. But also within Judaism, you were, uh, if you're a tax collector, you were considered literally on the same plane as prostitutes and adulterers. You were considered somebody who could not bring sacrifices to the temple. You could not bring offerings to the temple. Your money couldn't be taken into the temple because it was tainted by your profession. And the fact that you continued in that profession was proof that you were an unrepentant sinner. So your sacrifices can't be accepted because you're not repenting. And that's the point of the sacrifice was to say that I want to repent of my sins. And you can't give a thanksgiving offering because of the way that you received your income. So Nicodemus is a total outcast in the Jewish community, but not in the Roman community. In the Roman community, he's a respected person, not just in Jericho, but beyond Jericho as well, because he's a successful tax collector. He's providing much to the Roman Empire. So Jesus comes. He's coming from Galilee, going to Jerusalem to be crucified. So everything that happens on that journey, we should have heightened awareness and say, this is really important. If Jesus stopped to do this at that moment, then it was a really important thing. So he comes into Jericho. So you've got Think of this. You've got pilgrims who have come from Galilee with him. They've seen the things that he's done. Everybody by this point knows about Lazarus, for instance. So Jesus comes with this great group of pilgrims in tow because they're all going for the Passover festival in Jerusalem. So these people are coming and they get to Jericho. And because those people have to go from there to Jerusalem to go to the temple regularly, everybody knows Zacchaeus, not just the people in Jericho. They have to quickly add one other thing, and that is, is that, they, that you don't have to go through Jericho. There's actually a shorter way around to get there, but nobody goes that way. And it's because you have to go through Samaritan territory. And as much as Jews hated tax collectors, they hated the Samaritans worse, and it was mutual. So it, it, no good to go through Samaria. It's bizarre and strange that, that in John 4, we're told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. No Jew would have said, yeah, he had to pass that way because they didn't go that way. Jesus had to do it, but not because that was the way to go. He had to do it because he had an appointment with that woman at the well. So that's a totally different situation. But all these Jewish people now, these pilgrims who have been going to, from Galilee to Jerusalem over the years, know this guy. <clears throat> so they come in, they come into the town, and, and we know there's a big crowd. <clears throat> and we know that because Zacchaeus says, it's such a big crowd, I can't find a place to see Jesus. 
So <clears throat> he makes his own way to do that, and he does two odd things in order to do that. He does the first thing that he does that's odd. So Zacchaeus does two interesting things. Grown men, particularly wealthy men, didn't run. That was something children did. Grown men didn't run. It was considered completely undignified. There's only one other place that I can think of in the Gospels where you see anybody running, and that's in the story of the prodigal son, and that's the father. When he sees the son coming, he goes running to him. So I believe in some ways the story of Zacchaeus is the lived-out story of the prodigal son. This wealthy man runs, and then he does something really crazy. In a pair of shorts, I might climb a tree. The way they dressed, I'm not climbing a tree, and I'm certainly not going to do it in public for a parade. Zacchaeus did. He does these two things. He runs in public to get ahead of the crowd, and then he climbs up in a tree because he's a little guy. As a Roman publican, he could have demanded the best seat, the best place to be when Jesus comes. But in this instance, what he sees in Jesus, what he's heard about this Jesus, has him set that completely aside. Whatever dignity he has as a Roman publican, no longer matters because he is also a Jew and this might be Messiah. And so he can't, he's not going to stand on his Roman dignity. He is going to become a humble tax collector, sinner, Jew. So he can see Jesus. He is desperate to see him for some reason. He is not lost. Many people, most Jews, would have thought this man completely lost. He's not, and he proves it by doing those two things, running in public and climbing a tree so he can see Jesus. Jesus comes in. Everybody in Jericho has heard of him. We know there's a big crowd. We've got this pilgrim band coming with him as they go towards Jerusalem, and the crowds are great, and Jesus comes, and, and Zacchaeus is in that tree to see Jesus. But instead, what happens is Jesus sees him. Out of all that crowd, Jesus picks out one man, and he calls him by name Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for I've got to stay at your house today. Here's the crazy thing. The name Zacchaeus means pure, chaste. Jesus looks. He could have pointed the bony finger at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, you're a terrible, miserable sinner. Unless you repent, you're going to hell. When he said the name Zacchaeus, had to have blown that man away that that he knew his name and he didn't point the bony finger. Instead, he said, come down, hurry. I got to stay at your house today. Everybody else there is disgusted by this idea that this man is now hanging out with sinners. Zacchaeus has to be the most shocked man on earth. Jesus, the one who is being celebrated in this thing, looks at him who is despised and an outcast and says, I'm going with you. Really? What did he do? He came down quickly, it says. He hurried to meet Jesus, and he received him joyfully. So then they go to the house, and the people are grumbling. 
Now, when you had a personage of Jesus's rank, you typically, in those days, you would make that person welcome. But the other thing you would do to sort of enhance your own you know, stature, you, you would open the windows and the doors, and people could then come and hang out. They could see that this important person was at your house. Jesus made it public knowledge, but there's probably people around this thing, and they're saying he's a sinner, and what they're saying is he's like a prostitute. He's like an adulterer. He's, you know, he's a horrible, horrible person. He's a robber. <clears throat> and Zacchaeus stands and makes a declaration, and he says, half my goods I give to the poor, so he has just cut his own net worth in half and says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold, which is exactly what the law required in Judaism. So Zacchaeus has done something incredibly important, right? What did he do? He repented. So he confessed his sins and he said, I'm confessing this gain is ill-gotten at some level. And so I'm giving away half of it to the poor. He couldn't give it to the temple because the temple couldn't take it. So he's got to give it to the poor. So he, he has enriched people by giving to the poor and then said, I will make restitution to anybody that I've defrauded. It's a remarkable thing that he's done. But the reality is it's not just remarkable. It's exactly what he had to do in order to get forgiveness. He had to actually not just confess his sins. He had to repent, and then he had to make restitution. He had to do something for that. And then Jesus says, salvation has come to your house today. And we were talking about this morning. Suzanne asked me about that. She said, so um, what compelled him to do that? Zacchaeus recognized Jesus, I believe, as Messiah. He couldn't go to the temple and make those confessions. He made them right there to Jesus. Made that promise to him in sight of and hearing of other people. He recognized something and Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today, Zacchaeus. It's a remarkable thing, and I want you to understand the implications of it, in particular in Zacchaeus, because everybody coming from Galilee had to pay taxes through Zacchaeus. Everybody who lived in Jericho had to pay taxes through Zacchaeus. They all just got a tax cut, and I mean that in the strongest possible way. This changed everybody's lives. It opened that up in a way that it wasn't before. Jericho became not a place to dread anymore. No, it's fine. Zacchaeus' confession and salvation changed the lives of everybody in that region. That's how important that little man who climbed up the sycamore tree was. Huge thing that Jesus does here. He didn't just change Zacchaeus' life. He changed the lives of everybody in that region when he came to Zacchaeus' house. The, the, the implications weren't just for Zacchaeus and his household. They were for everybody in that whole region. Enormous thing that Jesus does here. An incredibly important thing. If a tax collector can be brought to repentance and new life, then the implications are that anybody can. But Zacchaeus becoming an honest man changed the lives of everyone in that region. It's an amazing thing how powerful that 
little story actually is. But I want to talk about it now just for a couple of minutes in, in the context of Hesed. Uh, one of the things that, that is important for Hesed, for, so, so interpersonal Hesed, let's say, let's call it charity, for lack of a better term. So that desire that you might have to bless someone else who is in need, what the Jewish concept and what I hope we can make more Christian concept is this. <clears throat> You're doing that is no more important, doesn't make you any better than the person for whom you do it. God provided that person that you can reach out to and help in order that you could keep a commandment, in order that you could love your neighbor as yourself. And so they contribute as much as you do because you need them to be your brother in need. And so nobody is better than anybody else in that exchange. It's, it's loving your neighbor requires at some level for you to have a neighbor that needs you to love them. And so both those are equally important in Hesed. It's the reason they say, the Jews say, that, that one of the reasons at least why God created the universe, because he was filled with this loving kindness, but didn't have anybody to, to bestow it upon. We would say, nope, we got a trinity here. There's this perfect love that is shared among the members of the Trinity. But we would also agree that there's an overflow of that. It can't be contained just in the Trinity. And the proof is creation. We would reason backwards to it. But what they say is God created um, everything in order to show his hesed. But that's not quite enough because there's got to be somebody who can receive it and give thanks for it and who needs it. And so he creates us in his image so that he can bestow that hesed upon us. We can then be grateful for that. And the overflow of our gratefulness then is to love one another, to love those that are created in his image, because we now see we can be to them, to our brother, our sister, we can extend God's hesed to them. So part of hesed is hospitality. So what happens here is Jesus provides the opportunity for all this to happen. When he speaks to Zacchaeus and he says, come down, I must stay at your house. You have to provide me hospitality. And he's not going to deny that. So Jesus reaches out to him with grace. Nobody's reaching out to Zacchaeus in grace. Jesus does when he calls him by name and said, I have to stay at your house today. And people are scandalized by the grace that Jesus gives to Zacchaeus. And they don't want it. But you see what the result of Jesus' grace towards Zacchaeus was, right? He didn't lead with judgment. He lent with grace. And so he gave the opportunity for Zacchaeus. Now in the face of grace, Zacchaeus can confess and he can repent. Hatred never got him to do it. Hatred of all those people. We don't even know how many people that was. The hatred of all those people towards Zacchaeus never changed his heart. Grace, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. Provided the space where Zacchaeus could repent and the lives of all those in the region be changed because Jesus extended grace. That's our job. That's what we're here for. We are to extend grace to those who are outside the covenant. Jesus said, seek and save the lost. Those who are outside the church, we're supposed to lead with grace. We're supposed to make it possible for them to see 
the Hesed love of God for them. And if we do that, sometimes Jesus said, a wicked man's going to strike you, and then you turn the other cheek. But sometimes, sometimes, you have an extraordinary thing happen, like happened with the wee little man who changed the lives of everybody in that region because he recognized Jesus as Messiah, he repented, and he made restitution. That's powerful. Probably more powerful than you ever realized.